church. We have worshiped together in the Lord, and now we will hear God's word together in the Lord from John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, I hope you have a copy of God's word this morning. And if you do, go ahead and open up to that passage there in John chapter 3. We're going to look at those last five verses or so of this incredible chapter we've been mining through the last few weeks. You, you've probably heard this statement somewhere along the line, this quote from A.W. Tozer. It's a powerful quote. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about us. For most people, God is the result. Um, he's the end result of a chain of reasoning rather than a reality. According to such people, they may say that there's much to suggest that God exists. They may say things like, well, of course, there's beauty of nature, the immensity of space, the order of matter. He must be because there is, right? There's just is. So if there is, then therefore there, God is, yeah? Others will say things like, well, hey, you know, um, they'll argue from a parent or friend's experience, and they'll say, well, hey, um, he must be real. God must be real because he was real to my mother, so therefore he must be real and I must believe in him. Others will even go a little further and find that their belief is linked to, you know, things, good things like truth and goodness and beauty and ethical ideals. All of these things are wonderfully helpful and they certainly do contribute to the conversation about who God is and does God exist. And obviously each one of these chains of reasoning, though they're unique, they can be very good for us as we deeply reflect upon the nature of the world, our own experience in the world. Yet their uniqueness aside, I love how A.W. Tozer takes a little further look into these, these ways in which people uh, don't necessarily experience God, but try to reason that there's a God. He says, those who hold them have one thing in common. They do not know God personally. They can, they can know him maybe intellectually. They can deduce his existence from things around them, but they do not know him personally the possibility, they would say, he would say, of an intimate acquaintance with him has not entered their minds. And so while admitting their, his existence, they do not think of him as knowable in the sense that you might know things or I might know people. Now, the reason that's important for us is that um, 
although this is probably more true of non-Christians in our world, it is certainly true, at least in one sense, or partially true for some believers. We tend to relegate God to an intellectual exercise rather than an experiential heart level experience of who he is and know him personally as he is revealed in Scripture. And so there we struggle then. Um, those who say they believe in Christ and trust in him in one sense, they still, and we still at times, see God as a little bit unreal. You know, we go through our life attempting to love an ideal or maybe love a, be loyal to a certain abstract doctrine or principle rather than actually know the God of the principle. Now, if you're at any point on this spectrum I'm just describing, I think today's text will help you a lot. Because I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we probably do find ourselves struggling sometimes to experience God fully and, and to know him personally as he would want us to know him personally and not just to know him abstractly. And so I hope this text will help us this morning because at the end of the day, because Jesus is a reliable witness to who God is, you and I can have real confidence. This is the, the big crescendo of the morning, right? We can have real confidence of knowing God as personal, not just abstract. And that demand, demands, listen, this is, the, this is the hard part of it, that demands an uncompromised trust and affection for him. Because Jesus' witness is reliable, we can have real confidence of knowing God as personal and not abstract. And that demands uncompromised uh, trust and affection in him. Now, over the course of our study in God, the gospel so far, we've just seen John just, like, he, he, he has just not left us guessing about who Jesus is, has he not? I mean, he has been very clear. He's used everything at his disposal. We've still got a long way to go in the Gospel of John. But he's just really showed us such wonderful and beautiful things about who Jesus is, right? Just, just a little bit of a reminder. He's the true temple. He is the true Sabbath. And he is the one who comes and gives us the ultimate rest. And he's the one who atones for our sins and all the things that we've seen thus far. And so much more to see and experience. But it does beg a question. Well, how do we know? How do we know that this Jesus is who John says he is? How do we know that he's actually a reliable witness to who God is and what God is revealing into the, in the world? It's a, it's a worthy question of our pursuit this morning. And that's why John spends the end of his chapter 3 here. We see him uh, trying to answer that question for us. But he's going to ask us to answer another question too, though. When we see him as this reliable witness, what would we do with him? What will you do with him? And so that's really the frame of our text this morning. The first part of our text is going to be, how do we know? What, why is Jesus a superior revelation or superior witness to God? And the second question will be, is what are we going to do with him? Pretty simple uh, goal I have today, but hopefully one that will stir our hearts. So let's talk about that first question here. We're going to look at, examine verses 31 through 35 together for a few moments and examine that first question of why is Jesus a superior revelation, a superior witness to God? And there's three things that we're going to see in this text. Go ahead and give them to you now so that you can kind of look for them as we walk through the text. One is that he is a firsthand witness. That's who Jesus is. He is a truly firsthand witness. Everyone else is a secondhand witness at best. Second, he is a willing witness. He's willing to do and willing to proclaim, willing to testify to the things he's seen. And then the last we're going to see is that he's actually a credible witness. He's been, or maybe you might say an accredited witness. So we'll look at those three things in order this morning. First, let's talk about the fact that he's a firsthand witness. Look at verses 31, or verse 31, and just kind of 
Walk through the idea of what John's trying to say to us here. The one who comes from above is above all. And then he kind of gives us this, the meat of the sandwich. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. And he comes back to the kind of the bottom piece of the bread or the top piece of the bread. It says the same thing he said in, in earlier. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So he kind of gives us this theological sandwich there. And he's really trying to push a point here. He's comparing Jesus as a witness, a reliable witness, compared to maybe his contemporaries, like John, John the Baptist. And he's saying that he's not like John the Baptist. He's not like the prophets. He's not like, they're all secondhand associates to this knowledge. No, Jesus is actually a firsthand uh, uh, witness to who God is. The point is that Jesus is holy. He's a, a holy other kind of, of spiritual witness. That he is actually, namely, that he, is, that he is from above, as it says in text, and he is sent from the Father into the world. Now that's different than what we've seen in John the Baptist, is it not? That's different than even Peter, when he claims, and he makes that great declaration in Acts chapter 2. No, Jesus is something entirely, or someone entirely different. In fact, we've already seen this, if you remember back in our time earlier in John, John chapter 1. Let's just kind of remind ourselves of it. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and the light, that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The main part I want to focus in on there is kind of right there in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And number one, the Word was God. He is God. So he's a first-hand witness because he is God. Jesus possesses an accurate knowledge of God, namely because he is God. He has communed with the eternal counsel of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He, he is not like any other teacher. And, and this is why this is why, why John wants us to say he's, he's linked to, to his supremacy over all other teachers and, and prophets out there. I was helped by William Barclay's thoughts on this this week. He says, if you want information, you have to go to the person who possesses that information. If you want information about a family, you will have to get it firsthand from a member of that family. If you want information about a town, you will have to go get it firsthand from someone who comes from that town. So then, if we want information about God, we will get it only from the Son of God. And if we want information about heaven and heaven's life, we will only get it from the one who comes from heaven. When Jesus speaks about God and about the heavenly things, says John, it is no carried story, no secondhand tale, no information from a secondary source. He tells us that which he himself has seen and heard. To put it very simply, he says, because Jesus alone knows God, he alone can give us the facts about God and these facts about the gospel. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? This is why he's the firsthand witness. The reason we can trust that Jesus is everything that John's been saying is because he actually is God. Jesus uses this expression throughout uh, the gospel. John notes it several times of he is the one sent. I am the one sent from the Father. I am the one who's sent from heaven or sent from God. He uses this, that phrase 23 times. And 17 of those 23 times, he, he, he tells us it's related to his commission of where the Father sends the Son of, to accomplish the mission 
that was laid out among the Godhead before the foundation of the world. Now look, lots of heavy doctrine there. But tons of practical reason there. Tons of practical things that we need to take away from that. A couple thoughts. Number one is, in terms of who we listen to, in terms of who we give authority to, we need to take good thought about that, right? Because though I or any other prophet or any, I'm not not prophet, I'm not prophet, but any other teacher or preacher or even prophets from old, like they are at best, their insights are secondary. They report only what God had revealed to them, but that is not who Jesus is. Jesus is an actual firsthand witness of the activity of the Godhead. Now that's important for us because we are prone in our world, in all kinds of facets in our world, to be hero worshipers. And they can be Bible teachers, they can be great leaders, they can be any other people in the world, and we tend to be hero worship. But we resolve, but listen, but here at Grace, I just want you to let you know what we're about. We're not about being great pulpiteers. We're not about building large crowds. We're simply about being close to the text, the close of the text that God has given us in his word, which is who we've given to us so that we might know Jesus as he truly is. To me, that is the heartbeat of everything we are at Grace. It's the heartbeat of what I think every church should be. And so we need to make sure that we take good notice of this when we're choosing our leaders and choosing the people that are um, shepherding us and, and even the people we listen to and the books we listen to, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. And so by knowing this, by Jesus being this you know, first-hand witness and everything else is secondary, what we find is that Jesus is this perfect witness because he's able to perfectly reveal God. I'm not able to do that. There's nothing like super magical about who I am. We sometimes elevate men and women to different things in our lives and we make them people they're not supposed to be, but Jesus is the only one who can hold that office. He is. No one has ever seen God, John 1.18 says, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Or later here in a minute, verse 32, he says, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He's not dealing with speculation. This is who Jesus comes to be. He is the center of all faithful biblical preaching and teaching within the fellowship of the believing. Now, all of that's wonderful, but it's also important, again, that we continue to press that out a little bit more because we need to make sure that we are really paying attention to the voices and the people who speak into our lives and the kinds of credibility, cred, the, the, the kind of credit that we give people for ideas in the world. And, and so we, we must discerningly judge people Prophets, if you will, modern prophets. There's always lots of them out there, right? People out there who assume they have certain experience or expertise in certain things. And even this happens within the church, and they'll take things out of Scripture. They'll take special insights out of Scripture, and they will make them, like, they'll tease out this, this minutia that has nothing to do with the central message of Scripture, and they lose the gospel entirely. And friends, this is, if you know anything about church history, you know this is exactly what the reformers set out to do. 
This is why Calvin wanted to reform the church in France. This is why uh, Luther wanted to reform the church in Germany, because they, the, the Roman church had become so, so focused on these minutiae things that it was becoming to manipulate people into certain behavioral actions, and that was not good enough because the gospel was being lost. Well, friends, I hate to tell you, but this, still, this stuff still happens today. There's lots of books that, that come under the, the heading of evangelical. They're not always the best for our diet. I can give you several examples, but one that was really popular maybe, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago was a book called Girl, Girl Wash Your Face. And, and I'm saying this because I, I love it. I want my people to be thoughtful about what they read. It doesn't mean you shouldn't read it. It just means you should be thoughtful of what you're intaking. Because really... And, and listen, I've listened to lots of people like, give good commentary on this, and, um, and, and Amanda's wa- 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 uh, has read this book a little bit, and we've kind of had some conversations about it. It's nothing more than rehashed New Age self-help with a Christian spin. And the reason I say that, and I'm, and I'm using that as an example, is because it's, there's, go to any Christian bookstore, or go on to any online bookstore, and you just find tons of this Trash. Trash. We must stand. I like to stand with guys like Alistair Begg because he has that reformer's kind of impulse. The plain things are the main things. And the main things are the plain things. That's the kind of of church we want to be here. Because at the end of the day, if the gospel gets co-opted by certain types of of, of maybe aspirations for your your, your betterment, whatever they may be, you're, you're, taking the, you're taking the focus off of what actually is happening, which is Jesus saving his people from their sins. And that's the gospel. Amen. See, we, you and I, or any book we read, are merely secondhand witnesses, and we need the centrality of the firsthand witness of Jesus if we're going to be a faithful church, if we're going to be a faithful believer. Now, so Jesus is a firsthand witness. Second thing Jesus is, is he's a willing witness. And that's what we see here in verses 32 through 35. I'm sorry, 32 and 33. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Now, what are we to learn here? Jesus is highly motivated with his message. He's highly motivated to teach God's word, to reveal what he himself has seen and heard from within his, prayer, his, his place within the Godhead. He wants you and I to know these wonderful mysteries, and he gives us such wonderful things, and we need to take those things seriously because Jesus has given those kind of things. Why would we get enamored by anything else if we've got this given to us by Christ? He is willing to speak the truth, and listen, he's willing to speak the truth in a truthless world. Friends, we live in a truthless world. And and listen, that shouldn't be a shock to you because that's been going on since the garden. So let's kind of take ourselves out of the present moment and realize that this is really not a whole lot different than what's happening since Adam and Eve. Okay? And so what Jesus, as he was going about his ministry and all the surrounding excitement around his ministry, what would Jesus do? He'd be having these miracles, right? He He would do all this healing and it was wonderful. But he never took his eye off being compelled to preach. And so when he would come and do these miracles, people would come and there were these lines and these crowds would happen about him and, and Jesus would take off and he'd want to take a little bit of time to rest and be with his father. And it was always his disciples who say, hey, uh, Jesus, we got a lot 
what's going on here. And I, don't, I don't think the work day's done yet. We've got some things to do. And, and Jesus was always focused on communion with the Father and preaching the gospel. Amen. Namely, Peter tells this. Peter comes to him at one point when Jesus has gone out into the wilderness to, to, to be with his Father. And, and Peter goes to him and says, hey, uh, um, hey uh, Jesus, um, really got a lot more work to do. And Jesus' response to him is this, no. We must go on. We must go on to the next town to preach the good news. His words, emphasis, that is why I've come. Is there a lot of healing to do in the world? Yes. Is there a lot of restoration in the world? Yes. But why, we, why he has come and why he sends the churches to preach the good news. This is why he has us in the world. And we need to keep ourselves anchored in that commission. He came to reveal the fullness of God and his purposes. And that's why he generally was rejected. So when Jesus would get into this point where he would teach and maybe uh, uh, his miracles dried up at one particular location and when he, or when he got to speaking too plainly for the folks, what would happen? People would leave. People would abandon Jesus. Why? Well, again, let's go back to A.W. Tozer. Because most people refuse Jesus because the message is too heavenly for them. They have their hearts only for the things below, not what he brings from above. That's why we get enamored by earthly things. Or we try to take the gospel and twist it into other things. It's because we get, we get bored with the heavenly things. And that should never be named among the people of God. Jesus comes. And then don't we see this today? That there, and listen, there, I said a minute ago, this is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. So don't take our day and try to make it something special, like there's some kind of special, like, you know, um, uh, rejection of God today that's not been true since the garden. But, but, but this idea is that we still see it today, right? We are consumed with things from below. We have been since the garden, and every one of us in some level gets struggles with this at time, from time to time, do we not? But we see this in our world today, and let's just let's talk plainly. Let's give at least one example. The, the, the council culture that is driving the world right now where everything is about everyone being right or not offensive and you can put anything. But listen, the cancel culture is not just a liberal thing. It's also a very it's extremist thing, and it's extremist on both sides. Every side, both sides are trying to cancel the other. Okay? So can we be honest about that? I think we want to just always think it's always the left wing or the right wing are the most ones. No, we're all doing it. Why? Because at the end of the day, we want people to fit into our little box. And what's happening is it drives Christians and sadly even pastors, well-known pastors, to, to water down our teaching, water down the gospel, Maybe even reject the gospel or at, at minimum apologize for the gospel or apologize for harder truths that are touched on in the scriptures that just don't sit well with the culture. Particularly, we know today, the sexual ethics of our day, the new morality of our day, if you will. These are there. And so we as people must, must, must recognize that Jesus came as a willing witness and to preach, boldly preach truth to a truthless world. And in some sense, that is extended to us. But lest... You hear my words wrong. I'm not suggesting that our job in that, as we take up that call, is to simply 
hop on your favorite social media feed and rant every time you see the world operating the way the world's been operating since the garden. All right? No, John doesn't mince words here. He says, he who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. That's how we respond. It's not just about they're trying to win the, 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 the culture war. Rather, it's we commit to loving the life and, 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 and living the life that God has commissioned his people to live, to love our spouses with gospel love, to raise children in the church and teach them the truth through catechesis of some sort and form heavenly worldviews. Listen, if you're scared for your children's welfare, can I just tell you, if you're not teaching them sound doctrine, if you're not teaching them catechism, stop with all the little side stuff. That's not where the real party is. The real party is teaching your kids the word and teaching your kids to take advantage of these catechism kind of things that we try to, give, we try to promote here, right? Because that's going to shape their worldview. It's going to help them know their place in the world. And you know what their place in the world is? You know what my, pla- your, my place in the world is and what your place in the world is? To be weird. I love Rod Dreher. He's been writing a lot of articles on the contemporary cultural moment. And he wrote an article a few years ago called Keep Christianity Strange. It's okay to embrace your strangeness as God's people, right? That the failure of Christians today isn't our success in a culture war, but our willingness to be seen as strange and accept that role, right? If, look, and I see this because I've been, I was a former youth pastor coming out of this, and uh, I see this a lot in, as I watch people throughout the, that I've trained and taught in youth ministry in my prior place that this, the millennial generation, and this is not to be a crack on them because we all have struggles in every generation, right? But it's, listen, if they're being ravaged by the cultural new morality of the culture we're in, it's probably because, not because we failed to win the culture war in a previous generation, but it's because we failed to form their worldview through sound biblical doctrine. And teach them you don't need to be fearful of being weird. You don't have to be fearful and you don't have to be rude about it either. (laughs) So can we talk to that side of it too? I feel like sometimes we feel like it's our obligation to be rude about our truth. No, just be weird. Embrace the weirdness of being a Christian. And I hope you become weirder this week. So the last thing that, Jesus, that John tells us about Jesus, his, his reliability uh, as a witness, is that he's certified. He's a certified witness. And look at verses 34 through 35. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words. Since he gives the Spirit without measure, in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Amen. So finally, the reason we can trust Jesus is that he's certified. And namely, who is he certified by? The Father and the Spirit. That's what it says right here. He's first, he says, certified by the Spirit there, right? He gives the Spirit without measure. That can be said of no one else in history. You and I are given the Spirit, yes, but we're given the Spirit within measure. Paul talks about this in various parts of his Gospels, that he gives us the Spirit as we need it. But that's not true of Jesus. He gives Jesus, the Father gives Jesus the Spirit without measure. 
Isaiah 1, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 11, 2. The Spirit of the Lord rest, shall rest upon him. Who? Him, Jesus, the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Even Jesus, when he begins his ministry, and we see this in Luke chapter 4, he stands to, in the middle of the synagogue and he opens up Luke 60. I'm sorry, Luke 61. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor. Jesus knew he comes as a, not only as a first-hand witness, not only as a willing witness, but as an absolute certified witness. This is extremely important because Jesus knew and he did the will of the Father perfectly. He was never at a loss for God's word. He was... His miracles certified his teaching, and ultimately the Spirit certified Jesus' witness through what? Well, we're going to celebrate in about three weeks, the resurrection. This is why Jesus is who he is, and it's why we can trust him. To whatever degree you want, we want, or should want to see the work of the Spirit in our lives, there is, out, there is not work more certified than that of Jesus. And, that's, and so then, let me just kind of make a connection here. I am one of those people who wants and longs for God to do the work of the Spirit in the church and to see it in the lives of His people. But it can never be divorced from the true Spirit-filled man, Jesus. And so to the degree that we as a church remain faithful to preaching Jesus, to the degree that we remain faithful, faithful to preaching the central message of the Scriptures, which is Christ and Christ crucified, we can be assured that we will not just fall into a spiritless place. We want to be a word-drenched church at Grace. Churches should never be named among us to be casual in our acquaintance with the church. Half-hearted about our participation or gathering with the church. No. That should never be said about us. There's nothing casual about our faith in Christ. There's nothing casual about our adoption, as we sang earlier, in Christ. There's nothing casual. Too much went into that from eternity past, and we should never be casual about that, and we should never be casual about being God's people. But he's not just certified by the uh, certified witness uh, through the Spirit. He's certified by the Father. The Father loves the Son and gives, giving him all things has given all things into his hands. So John was one of the ones who witnessed Jesus being baptized. When Jesus was baptized and they see the Spirit descending like a dove, he heard the Father's words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father certifies Jesus. He's pleased with Jesus because Jesus is his Son that has come to do what you and I and, and all of our forefathers and, 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 our, and our foremothers, if, you, if that's a word, have not been able to do. This is Jesus, and he's certified. And he not only came to accomplish it, he actually did accomplish it, and he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so what that means for us is that Jesus has the authority to declare God's word and send his spirit into all who will receive it by faith, him by faith. And therefore you can have confidence when you leave this place to go out into the world and 
be weird, be strange. Friends, if you're looking for a spiritual leader, if you're looking for a spiritual God, you will find none other, nothing better, none better than Christ. Because he's more than a spiritual teacher. He's more than a spiritual God. He is actually God himself. The sent son who would die on the cross for our sins, as we'll see on Good Friday, and he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death for us and that we might be saved by faith. This is who Jesus is. And we can be assured that if that is true, and it is, that he will empower us and fill us with his spirit to accomplish whatever work he has assigned, remember last week, assigned to us. It's important. Now, that's just the first question. Let's talk about the second question. I don't think I'll take as much time on the second question. I think the second question just gets right to the heart, doesn't it? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are we to do with Jesus when we leave here with this Jesus? Well, of course, we're faced with two choices, right? And that's exactly what it says there in verse 36. The one who believes and the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains upon him. It's, it's very clear. There is no middle ground. You either are going to believe in him or you are going to reject him. There is no in-between. It's just not a choice we've been given. I, I won't be able to say, you won't be able to say, I didn't know. I won't be able to say, you won't be able to say that I was too busy. I had other things to do. I was being a good parent by doing other things on Sunday. I was too scared for my family's well-being so that I kept my distance and tried to take care of my family. And that, like, listen, who's a better caregiver for you than Jesus and for your well-being? I won't be able to say, you won't be able to say, well, you know, that person a long time ago or maybe recently hurt me in the church and therefore I just don't really want to believe in this Jesus. And listen, as tragic and horrific as that, is, uh, as that can be in the church and should never be named among the church, it is sad to say that many people do get hurt in the church, sometimes even abused in the church, and that's wrong. But as wrong as that is, please understand, it's even infinitely more wrong to reject the Jesus who can heal you from that. Because that's who he is. The modus operandi of our day is, well, hey, you know, I, I can excuse myself from any real faithfulness or obedience because I have this narrative going on in my life. Now, listen, every one of us have narratives that inform our actions, sometimes positively, oftentimes negatively, right? But the reality is there's only one antidote no matter which, one, which, which narrative is informing your life, and it's Jesus. It's who he is. And he, he kind of, it's just jumping back to verse 33, he kind of puts it a little bit further. Like, the one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. So then, and to the degree that you and I accept Jesus, we are saying and declaring to the world that he is true. He's true in the midst of my pain. He's true in the midst of that abuse you may have experienced. He's true in the midst of that broken relationship. He's true in the fact that you, whatever circumstances that you, um, that, that you've been, had experienced in your life that are absolutely horrific he's still true if you believe you're saying god is true but the converse is true as well if you reject what are you saying he's a liar 
God isn't who he says he is. God does not love me. Friends, those are the two choices we have before us. To call God a liar is to say that Jesus has not done everything necessary to save you and I. To call God a liar is to say that your sin is not really that big of a deal, so I'll get on about my life okay without him. But John, in a later epistle, 1 John, to be expect, in verse, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, actually takes another stab at it for us. If you're tempted to say, well, you know, my sin's not that big of a deal, or hey, I can get on without Jesus, or, or hey, maybe I can, I can have a little bit of Jesus and have a little bit of this, and no. Verse 5, this is the message. We have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. What does that say? It means he blows up the darkness in your soul. And if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we, have, we, um, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. So it's not ultimately God that's a liar. We are, saying, we are becoming the liars because we're not saying what is true. If we walk in the light and as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with, the one, with one another. So the church becomes real, even in the midst of that brokenness and that darkness. The light shines through and we become real fellowship. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. We make him a liar. So to believe is to say God is true and to, to reject is to say he's a liar. So then what kind of life is revealed in God's people who believe in Jesus? A life of profound faith that God is not a liar. Our world doesn't know how to trust in God because they don't know him. And the one, as we said in our earlier illustration, of all people who should know him, it should be the church. Because the, we can say to the world, he's not a liar. He loves you. He has done everything necessary to redeem all those who will receive him by faith. He is true, and every, every need that you and I have or presume to have in this life is met at the cross. And that demands our deepest joy and our utter affection. And so, as we come to the table, you're, it's an act of faith. Is it not? It's an act of faith because you're saying, God's not a liar. He really did shed his blood for me. God is not a liar. He really does have a heavenly table waiting for me that I will enjoy fellowship with, with him and my brothers and sisters of faith for eternity. God is not a liar. He will rescue me from his sin. He will rescue me from the pain. God's not a liar. You come to the table this morning saying, God is not a liar. God, help us this morning as we ponder that, reflect upon that. Help us as your people to be moved by this to a greater and 
more intense affection for, your, for who you are and the reliability of your witness and, be, and to be your people. And as Lord, we come to the table, God, we come together as one. Your family, you've created through your blood as a witness to the world, strange as it may be, we embrace, we, we embrace the strangeness. Yes, it's in Christ's name. Amen.